What is going on, everybody? I am 87% sure that we're live across all the multiple platforms that you guys catch the scope on. And uh, we are here for episode 49, I do believe. It's almost Christmas time, so I got my got my cool hat on. Buff made me wear it, um, so yeah. you can thank him for this disaster on my head. And um, <laughs> man, it's going to be a really fun show. Um, I am joined on my right, your, le your left, Buff Nerd Gaming. Co-host is here. What's up, man? How's it going, guys? Good to be here. And then we are incredibly honored and thankful uh, to have Auntie on here from all the way, stayed up late at night over in Finland to join us to talk about a game that we're incredibly excited about. I'm incredibly excited about learning how one person is able to put all of this stuff together on schedule. Um, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you and excited to talk about everything. Um Buff, have you been you been okay? You been good over there? Doing good. I got my let's see if I can get my head out of the way. Christmas tree. Can you guys see the the Christmas tree? Got it going. Nope. Oh, oh, wait. Oh. I see it in my mind. There it is. There, there it go. is. There it is. Okay, yeah. Christmas tree. I've got some lights up, getting the whole setup going. You guys see my my numerous bodybuilding trophies there. And uh, yeah, doing oh man. Doing good, man. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Looking good, looking good. Um, uh, Auntie, how is um, how's the weather in Finland? I'm curious. I waited to ask until now because I'm I'm curious. Yeah, actually, we we had uh, a semi snow storm or at least uh, bunch of snow uh, last week, but now it's back to the old dark gray wet Finland. So all the snow has pretty much gone <laughs> to wet and rain. So you're going to get your feet wet. <laughs> it looks like it and that's kind of the look and feel you get from the game too and i know um you said you kind of model it after some real world uh locations over there so we'll definitely get into that quite a bit um is it i'm sorry i'm just caught up on this because being in different places of the world as someone who does not travel that much uh i'm i'm always uh curious about it what's the what's the temperatures like this time of year because you're in winter so like what how cold does it get uh I, I can only unfortunately say in Celsius, so hopefully that's fine. Guys, yeah, uh, typically it's maybe minus ten degrees in in the south, but it sometimes goes uh, all the way down to minus thirty oh degrees. So nice. yeah, yeah, I, I think every Finnish people has learned to get used to it in some ways. So it's not a big thing here if the, it's cold. I think we're we're about to experience some uh, Finnish type weather here on Thursday, um, where I'm at in the states. So it's gonna get really cold and some snow and ice and stuff. So I'll I'll get a yeah. taste. I'll get to see what it's like. Uh, this winter is going to be a, a bit different in Finland. I, I don't know if this is like uh, USA thing also, but the electricity prices have like quadrupled <laughs> here. So yeah. it's Jeez. going to be pretty uh, tough time for lots of people, but. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that um, across EU. Uh, we have like we had modest price increases, but like nothing crazy. Um, I actually I actually heat my home with wood pellets with like uh, pellets of sawdust that they make into pellets, and I have a stove that burns it. And uh, yeah. it's like a renewable resource that I you buy big bags of it, and so I heat my house. So I'm I'm really lucky yeah. to be able to do that, so it doesn't cost too much. 
And luckily, also in Finland, lots of people have fireplaces and such. But I, I know personally many families that are going to pay, pay like over a thousand uh, euros per month for the electricity, and Holy they don't have cow. all the modern things to cope. So it's going to be rough. But we have uh, our government is now trying to figure out how to like control this thing. Yeah, I, I hope they get help. That that's crazy. Everybody at least deserves to be warm, man. So hopefully they get that figured out. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that all across um, EU. There's some energy issues going on. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. All this all the stuff going on over there too, in the eastern part of the the continent. Um, so yeah, I was gonna talk to you a little bit. I think we should. I think it makes sense to go in chronological order. Um, it it does for my boomer brain anyway. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what got you into gaming and was it at an early age? And like, kind of, what are some of the iconic games that uh, that stuck with you, or you kind of grew up with? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty much the guy who has fallen in love with the one genre, and it's survival games. And it all all like started for me back in 2012 when I found this Arma 2 uh, Daisy mod, and I was really mesmerized. And I could almost almost say like I was obsessed with the game. Uh, and for then, I also learned that in Finland, uh, there was this, I don't know if you guys know Remedy, which has done Max Payne and those kind of games. So they released uh, at somewhat same time rates uh, a game called Alan Wake, uh, which was this American writer and this like story-based uh, game. And I found out that they had a like sister studio uh, 30 kilometers from me where I lived. So I decided to contact uh, there and they were kind enough to let me in and uh, basically like get my feet uh, between the door and see that, whoa, there are people who are really doing games in Finland because back then we didn't have any uh, Rovios, Angry Birds, Supercells or anything like these big mobile game studios that we have now. So back then it, it was kind of like risky in somewhat to even consider following this game journey path. But uh, Arma 2 Daisy mod was like the turning point for me when I decided that I, wa I want to learn how to make these cool survival games. And uh, But after that, I think uh, I've, I've always been kind of like single player guy, honestly, even though Arma 2 Daisy mode is a multiplayer game, but I'm I'm pretty lone wolf when it comes to gaming, and I, I really like experiences that are not hand-holding. For example, in that original Daisy mode, I absolutely love situations where you were in the, this huge open-world map, there was some road sign which said something in uh, Cyrillic uh, alphabet, and you don't have any clue where you are, and you have to like figure out, uh, and there's no tutorials, online guides for everything so i was really into games that are like hardcore games um so then so okay so that makes sense that's what hooked you on and then this game is very much in the same vein as some of those which we'll get into a little bit um but as far as kind of the build up to it then um the way i understood it in your dev blog was you are you about 10 years ago enlisted in the military in finland and uh yeah yeah and and in finland it's 
pretty different because we have this like conscript service for every male uh, at age uh, 18. So I was kind of like pulled to that pipeline from there. And then I got excited about this military stuff. And this game journey dream was put to aside from sometime, but I returned back to it maybe uh, 2017. But other games, uh, you asked earlier what were like inspiration for me. I was a big fan of uh, 2D isometric survival game called Project Sunboid. I don't know if you guys have heard it, but that was one big inspiration for me. And also I like these roguelike games also in survival genre. Uh, one was like uh, Cataclysm, Dark Days Ahead and those kind of games. But all, all my uh, games that I love to play were survival games. That's cool. Yeah, there's there's something about an, uh, of that immersion and you can just get into them and, and just kind of lose yourself. Um, that's pretty special about that genre, in my opinion. I don't play a ton of them, uh, but I have a few and, and enjoy them quite a bit. Um, are there are there any values or anything that you learned from the from the military that you kind of carried over into your like development and the way you look at things? Or is there any uh, stuff that helped you from your military service? Yeah, I, I kind of like analyzed this for myself a couple of times because at first I was kind of like bitter about I, I lost so many good years in that military path but when I look back to it there's so many advantages that I got from that life all the discipline organization skills stress handling and the overall like um, ambition and learning how to deal with hard situations they are especially uh, skills that are like competitive advantages in the game industry because most game developers are pretty uh, tech savvy and they don't maybe have that kind of same attitude or mindset that maybe ex-military guy does have so there's definitely huge huge uh, advantages that come from that career yeah, I could tell. I, I was pretty sure that's what was kind of happening because um, you've just been incredibly transparent in your devlogs um, with like how you look at things, how you plan things, how you scope things out. And even so much as in my opinion, you can kind of tell your attitude towards things. And um, it's it's really it's really cool. And it, it really um, adds a lot of validity to the project. And also, um, I just think how you're going about things and approaching are incredibly smart, not not over scoping yourself, not going you know, making something that's too big that one person can't handle, but also understanding your audience and, and what people are interested in, um, which I kind of want to talk about some of that too. Um, yeah. And, there... and on top of that military uh, career, one, we can talk this more in depth if you want, but one key point in my, my career uh, when it comes to game dev was that game teaching uh, job because we did... Uh, at the time, almost 50 games per year there when I was designing, uh, thoughting that uh, visual game design. So, for example, when a game developer usually finds its own niche, it usually stays there because it's comfortable to do. If you are a fan of FPS games, you do only FPS games. But if you're a teacher, you have a bunch of students that want to make car games. Some want to have 
puzzle games. So you're kind of forced to learn these all these genres and nuances and uh, all these kind of like aspects of game dev that you would normally not want to have to learn. So that's one key aspect of my background, which has really helped me because four years of doing that uh, visual game design teaching uh, over 200 games, small projects, but still uh, that's a huge learning like pool uh, for my background. Yeah, that that's awesome. Um, so yeah, that makes total sense. So you're, you're doing all these things that you normally wouldn't do, but there's probably bits and pieces from each little project that you can learn and say, oh, that's cool. And that kind of applies to what I want to do. And you probably have learned quite a lot more than you would have if you just would have stuck with survival only in that, right? In the, and kept yourself inside that box. Yeah. Cool. And you have this like bird's eye view when you are like mentoring students and watch how they uh, behave, how their they, uh, projects evolve, what are the like, uh, pain points for each, each genre and uh, although I had pretty good uh, substan uh, like substance skills for game dev I, I know all the modeling and coding and shots but still that teaching job gave me this bird's eye perspective for game development which is like really important to understand all all the like big failure moments that uh, students have because they are somewhat all the same for other indie developers as well. All game developers suffer this same kind of like aspects at the beginning. Yep. This is really cool. It's all, it's all making sense. Cause um, ever since we uh, buff and I've talked about it before, like ever since we followed the game, it's like, how is one person putting this together? But it, it just sounds like the, you know, the last 10 or so years have kind of built you into the, the perfect person to take this on. Um, so that's, that's really cool. It's kind of, it's, it's all starting to make sense. Um, before we get into the, the particulars of the game, um, as far as the overall vision goes, were there any other travel or life experiences that kind of fed into the vision of the game? Or is it uh, pretty much just you were a fan of that and you kind of grew up in this area? Uh, I would say uh, in, in Finland, there are lots of these like, historic places uh, which are related to uh, past wars and shots and I, I lived near those places and near the Russian border for most of my life so having to uh, actually see those places and uh, with the military also understanding how our border is uh, how it looks how it behaves what kind of like landmarks they are uh, that's definitely one aspect that has uh, affected this project because I, I lived so close to that border. So it's like my hometown was where this game is taking place. So uh, that's definitely also that I'm familiar with the locations that I'm trying to now uh, put into the game has helped me a lot. That's really cool. Um, so the overall game, the premise of it is it's a hardcore single player survival game set in post-apocalyptic border zone between Finland and Russia. Um, and my simple brain, like the first question I want to ask is kind of really broad, but it, and I want to get into more details in a minute, but is there any backstory? This is what I've been wondering. I'm wanting to ask you, is there any backstory as to what caused the apocalypse? Or yes, is just there is. And, uh, and I have actually written quite in-depth lore for this game. Uh, but 
one thing that I'm kind of annoyed with the current state of the game industry that everything is so handheld and accessible and I think it's mostly because the mobile game industry that everybody wants to show all their cards at once and for me like I mentioned that experience with the Daisy and getting totally lost I'm really careful to tell certain things about this project even though I love transparency but for example I'm not going to show any screenshot of the Vostok side of the map I want the player to actually feel that when he first time goes there That's cool. and I think there's some x factor to this that you don't know what happened I'm going to give small tips and like visual clues with the upcoming public demo too where you can actually travel to the border zone and across it uh, but in terms of explaining doing some lengthy youtube video this is the lore this is what happened uh, I don't want to do that because I, I I want actually that this game is a hardcore game and you have to learn and figure out stuff for yourself you, but you there did. is a lore and story to this game. That's awesome. You didn't answer my question, but it was the perfect answer to that question, if that makes sense. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, basically most of the stuff, so you mentioned you worked for that one studio for a little bit, but is a lot of like your work with Unity and Blender and stuff like that, is that mostly self-taught? Yeah, and actually, I didn't work for them. I was kind of like a visitor for, <laughs> gotcha. for them. But but uh, I'm kind of like uh, anomaly because even though I have spent all these years in game dev, I haven't worked for any studios. I have done 3D freelancing, uh, selling 3D assets, doing like work for higher stuff, but I have never been inside a game studio. Meaning, actually, I'm I full-time working there i visit i know a bunch of people and i have connections to game studios so i know how they operate but i i i'm not i haven't been into that uh, path uh, myself so all these skills have been self-learned no schools no uh, game dev jobs just freelance stuff and uh doing part-time things along with the military that's that's awesome that's incredible yeah anomaly would be would be the correct word. Um, so you talked about uh, teaching for a little bit and how you learned in advance through that. Um, have you always wanted to to work on your own to to develop a game solo, and and why is that? If so, yeah. Uh, back back in uh, 2012, when I first got obsessed with the Daisy mode, I I already decided uh, then that I want to make games by myself full-time in the solo game developer sounded really compelling and since that I've tried to pursue this goal and even though the road has been kind of like all over the place sometimes uh, I, I always had a goal in mind that one day I'm going to make this game that I'm currently now making and that's I think one aspect also that many people don't realize that I've basically planning to make this game for 10 years so uh, when people ask, have I considered this and that, it's pretty high chance that I, I've <laughs> written multiple design documents for all the game stuff numerous of times. And uh, I, I think, I wouldn't say that this is like, because many indie game developers use this dream game word that is it, it's their own baby and they want to protect and it's all, all they want to do. Uh, I don't have any intentions to make other games 
uh, other than Road to Vostok. But for me, I see that this is... I don't want to use the dream game word. It's kind of like uh, dilated because YouTube is full. If you search the game uh, word devlog in YouTube, there's hundreds of uh, making my dream game devlog one. And none of those games ever across the finish line, if you know what I mean. So this is basically a project that I have been planning for 10 years. But but yeah, maybe that rumble was kind of the answer. But uh, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are there are there any advantages or disadvantages to working solo? I can imagine maybe you know disadvantages a lot of the work. But there are there any advantages like just familiarity with the entire project or things that you like about uh, working solo on a project like this? There's multiple advantages, and the first aspect that I want to mention is that most game developers who enter this uh, realm of making games uh, full time. Uh, they usually like to get pretty fancy at the beginning, meaning office spaces, multiple roles, and the burn rate for some of these indie game studios is pretty damn high, meaning it's really, really expensive to make games. And when you force yourself in a situation that you're burning a lot of money every month, uh, you are also going to make decisions that are compromises to the original vision and there's always this like huge pressure behind you because the money is the main contributor contributor for your actions. So it's the one advantage that I want to mention first is that I want to make this solo now because I can control that burn rate really effectively now. So there's no financial pressure for me to make sure that I have a team of 10 people who get paid every month. So that's that's one big advantage, uh, controlling that burn rate. Uh, other advantages are definitely on the communication and meeting stuff because uh, games are pretty complicated stuff to make. And especially the game that I'm making, uh, it's so large and complicated project and you have to understand uh, the foundation pretty right. For example, uh, today I was doing some uh, attachment stuff. Uh, so if I would have multiple programmers in my team, uh, they would all have to know the foundation of that system and how it links to the weapon systems and shots and everything takes time. So now I, I can build that foundation really quickly because I don't have to teach it to uh, someone else. So that's also one advantage. But maybe also one one thing to add is that uh, in terms of like marketing and being transparent, I, I think doing things solo as first is pretty compelling because lots of people have already like thanked me because I when I put out these videos or someone sends me a message, I'm the one who responds to that. There's no middlemans or community managers or, or someone else. And I think it's pretty special that you can talk straight to the developer nowadays, because uh, for example, if I would like to contact some Daisy developer now, there's like, like three different community managers between me and him or her, and which is totally understandable. But at this stage, when you are capable of doing this like direct communication 
I, I see that it's one advantage for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And then, um, so yeah, right along those lines where you're talking about uh, transparency and communication with, uh, I mean, directly with pretty much your, your, you know, fan base or, you know, the players. Um, what, why was the decision to be completely transparent? And um, I mean, even, it, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but with all aspects of development from um, like brainstorming through the processes and how you organize your thoughts and everything, and even being open sourced with a lot of like, there's no copyrights on anything, um, even assets, if I'm not mistaken. And um, just what was some of the reasonings for being so transparent um, in the process? Uh, after being in this survival genre for 10 years uh, and seeing how other titles have dealt with their successes and failures, I think uh, nowadays there's, there's still like big stigma to this early access survival game. And for me, I don't see any other way of getting around the stigma but being 100% transparent because uh, maybe there's also one reason why that webcam isn't now showing. I, I'm not the guy who's like really searching for uh, like publicity or something, but I, I, I'm not a YouTuber. I don't especially... Uh, I enjoy making videos, but it's not my passion. But it's the only way to deal with this kind of project because if if it was like just basic hype towards some Kickstarter, uh, it would be then just another early access survival game. So the communication ha has has to be, in my mind, uh, totally transparent. There's no other ways. I don't know if you're familiar what what. Uh, some years ago, there was a game called Dead Matter in yeah, uh, yep. yeah, mm -hmm. and that game pretty much pulled the rock from this genre and nailed the coffin because uh, after that, every other early access survival game is pretty much uh, within that stigma, and it's totally understandable because as a player, if you're used to these like bad uh, situations. I'm not saying that Dead Matter is going to always do uh, this stuff, but there have been multiple events where the consumer has been screwed. And this has happened, unfortunately, too many times in survival genre. So my answer to this, it, it, it's necessary to have this kind of communication and transparency. Yep. And that's something that Buff and I have always talked about. We'd love to see from larger studios too. And there, I'm sure there's reasoning and stuff behind why they can't do that. But a lot of it, I think, is to that bureaucracy you alluded to of having a bunch of community managers and then more than likely a PR team. And then I just, yeah, I, I, we, I know I do. And Buff has talked about it too. Like we really appreciate that kind of transparency. It's super cool. And I've always... As someone who's just uh, pretty much enjoyed games, but I have like a kind of a mechanical mind, I always want to know how stuff works. So being able to see like the sneak peek uh, behind how a game is put together is a real treat uh, for me and for likely a lot of people. And it's just, it's also really cool um, just to to know what you're getting in a product and still, but still at the same time, I think you're doing it in a really cool way where there's still going to be a lot for people to to discover when the game does release, you know what's in the Vostok zone and what does it look like and why, why did I get here and figuring all that stuff out. So there's a lot of transparency, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to be really fun to find out when the game, when the game does release and get farther down the line. 
Um, and one one thing to this transparency is also that I don't know why, but somehow demos are nowadays, for me at least, it feels that nobody does demos anymore. Meaning like demos are something that happened a long time ago and it was like the norm for game industry, but it's now pretty rare that somebody goes this multiple demo route that Rotovost is doing. And I don't know why, because I, I think demos are the best way to like fully uh, to show what you're doing. Because making videos is smoking guns and mirrors, but having a playable demo is something that you can't fake. So I think that's one key aspect if you want to be in this survival genre. Some kind of demo is the best way to get rid of that stigma and showing what you're working. Yeah, that's really cool because uh, we've noticed it, especially in the AAA space. It's like you, they call it a beta, but it's like two weeks before release. It's like, it's, you're not yeah. going to change anything. It's, it's a marketing tool. It's not really a beta or a demo. Um, so um, in the pre-production uh, time, you said you started, you started with a year of pre-production to kind of, kind of feel things out. Um, one of the things that I thought was really cool is you said you built tools. And you also came up with kind of the visual style and stuff like that. Um, but uh, some of these tools that you built seem really insane that that uh, uh, kind of, an, uh, what do I want to say, automate some of the more tedious and time-consuming processes. Um, so what what were some of the, like, when did you come to the realization that you, that you needed tools and it was going to kind of benefit you quite a bit time-wise? Basically, Road to Vostok is hugely ambitious project for single developer and i'm not i'm not saying that i'm i'm always going to do this alone but as long as i'm doing it alone it's also necessary that there's tools to help this process because if you are doing everything manually and you haven't really thought through the process of how you're going to develop stuff there's no progression so these tools are just necessary for for this kind of development team where, where there's only one people. And for me, uh, the pre-production is also one, one key aspect that is often uh, misunderstood in the game industry and uh, especially in indie games because most indie developers are so passionate about their dream games and passion projects that they want straight to jump into developing them, meaning modeling, coding, but the actual planning and like figuring out the roadmap and how to make it more efficient. And also one, one key aspect of these tools are, if you think uh, game engine is basically like your house. Uh, sometimes your house gets dirty and messy. There's all kinds of like uh, trash. Uh, these game engines, they have thousands of files. And if you don't plan how you're going to keep your house clean and organized and uh, develop different routines, uh, then you're screwed because for a project like Road to Vostok, it's so big, there's so many files and systems and uh, date types, it needs these tools and systems in order to make this happen. Did we lose you, Crash? Crash, you're on mute. Test, test. I'm muted. Oh, I'm here. Ah, there he is. Okay. Production God. team. I'm going to get him why, fired. 
That's why I'm here, man. That's why I'm here. Yeah, you just saved the program. I'm gonna fire my production team. They're so bad. Um, yeah. So I would like to get into some of the mechanics of the game just a little bit. Um, not not spoil anything. Kind of talk about some of the stuff you've already mentioned in in the dev blog a little bit. Um, when in your in your first introduction to that blog, you talked about zones quite a bit. Um, and I I really didn't think of these as like a huge gameplay mechanic, but it, it when you think about it, um, it, it can be. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, you have area five, which is kind of a safer zone and then a border zone in between. And then on the east or right side of the map is or another area, not necessarily linear like that, but is Vostok on the other side of the border, which is a high risk area, um, and maps with transition points and then movements to connect, uh, to in between the maps and uh, kind of different difficulty ratings. And then one of the things that I thought was incredibly interesting to get across the border into Vostok, um, there are crossing points. Can you talk a little bit about those? Cause those sound really interesting to me and hopefully I got everything right with kind of how, how it's set up. You, you got it perfectly right. It's all about this horizontal difficulty, meaning when you move towards East, the game gets harder, but the loot gets better and the main selling point of this game is this like mysterious permanent zone. Uh, consider like Stalker the zone, but in Stalker you are already inside the zone. So Road to Vostok is trying to portray a scenario where you are start outside from the zone and then you enter the, the mysterious zone. But these crossing points are basically like uh, different kind of gameplay mechanics in order to get across and I've already kind of revealed some of those for example some crossing points require different skills from the player some require uh, movement skills for example there's uh, minor platforming for example broken bridges where there's risk of falling down and you have to like maneuver some old planks and rust metallic structures and so on so that's one option for you and one other crossing point might be uh for example, you have to use boat and in order to get that boat working, you need gasoline. And if you go through the sea route, there's certain risk of getting caught and so on. Uh, and then some crossing points require combat skills. It's heavily guarded like border outpost. So having these multiple approaches and the game word road to Vostok means that you are like figuring out the best road to get there. So having these different kind of gameplay mechanics in these crossing points are one way to portray uh, a user-defined path of how you get there. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. It sounds like it's not really a shooter it's as much as it is a pl platformer, driver, shooter, like puzzle. Like that. That's cool. It sounds like um, that's a really neat way to, to keep the replayability going, which is always one of my... Uh, I don't know, sticking points or concerns when it comes to a single player game um, is replayability, but it sounds like you pretty much addressed that with those mechanics. Um, yeah, and, and my background is, I think, here's one like advantage because when I was doing the teaching shop and when I mentioned that I, I get to learn all, all these different genres like vehicle mechanics and all, all these like other genre stuff, so those crossing points are basically my way to implement my skills from those other genres to this FPS survival game. And even though they are like really minor in the full scope of the game, 
I think it's cool to have something like that in a survival game. So it's not just like wandering in a forest and shooting and doing looting. So there's like these unique gameplay points that you have to choose. That's really cool. Um, Buff, did you have anything before I continue to blabber? Or um, I was just gonna ask originally, like, how long was your military? How many years were you in the military for? originally yeah it's kind of like separated into different segments in in finland uh there's this conscript service i i started there and the minimum currently i think is four or six months but i i stayed the whole year uh and became a platoon leader and after that i went uh basically finnish uh defense university which is i think it's west point is your mm -hmm. equivalent to that yeah and <clears throat> I was there three years and it involves some like uh, apprentice or job uh, like practice uh, part when you actually move to the like the troops that you're going to work with and after the university stuff and that like uh, practice period uh, I was little over a year if I remember correctly at full time uh, employed as a lieutenant. Nice. So combined one year conscript, three uh, plus years in university and plus one year in active duty. That's awesome. And then I the other question I had, which crashed me out the rain on your parade, you might have had the same question is <clears throat> for a lot of the weapons that you're adding to the game. Um, were those, I'm sure you had hands-on experience with some of those, but for the other ones, did you design all those models yourself and bring them in, or did you go out in real life and, and get hands-on experience with them to see how they handled? Yeah, weapons is kind of one of my pain points currently because it's something that I can't fully uh, implement to the level that I could with my skills, but mm -hmm. I have to kind of like hold myself back because it's not wise to spend all my time figuring these small minor details related to weapons even though I, I know this and it's mm. kind of painful painful sometimes to release something like arcade and uh, mediocre weapon stuff even though I, I have the knowledge to make like really top tier weapon stuff mm -hmm. but uh, in, in terms of weapon models I currently use this technique called kit bash which means that I use uh, 3D models that I have already owned from doing game dev 10 years and i also purchase 3d models and i come combine them and retexture in order oh, to wow. make like new variations and weapons are the only thing in this game that are somewhat outsourced from this mm -hmm. kit passing technique other than that everything is done by myself but in the future uh, every single weapon in road to vostok is going to have this uh, totally um, unique materials and uh, weapon systems to them so no outside stuff mm -hmm. it's it's only now because i want to progress fast so right. I'm, I'm using other model models now mm -hmm. yeah your fo your focus is on the the overall game and not exactly so does that also include like optics and attachments and things like that are those also outsourced currently uh yes some of them yes but this at attachment system is so fresh because i started yeah. Uh, last week it, right but, uh, you just started thing, doing it yeah yeah uh, one thing related to weapons is that uh, in Finnish military you actually don't have that much like 
even though I was in the infantry, uh, our weaponry is kind of like narrow mm. base, if I could say. So, for example, all the like NATO American weapons, ARs and stuff, I have very little experience in those and knowing all the details. But for that reason, because I, I want this game to be the best hardcore survival game that there is, I quickly found out that I have to learn this stuff because uh, even though I have this military background, it doesn't help me with your weapons because I don't know those kinds you, of weapons. You were trained on Eastern Bloc, like AK platform, yeah, right? Yeah, I, okay. I know all those weapons well, but yeah. uh, in terms of ARs and your weaponry, I decided to contact a couple of guys in Finnish who do uh, competitive shooting and mm -hmm. have all this knowledge, really deep knowledge about guns. And you have probably seen a couple of clips from the shooting range that I have shown. Yeah. So I yep. basically mentors now that are <laughs> teaching me those weapon related knowledge that I don't have yet. Awesome. So step by step, I'm, I'm, I'm acquiring that skill set that I, I can mm. uh, develop weapons that I haven't <laughs> used in my military time. Yeah, that's awesome. That That's that shows a great like attention to detail for you to outsource, like go out and get the get the information from others who who know the, know what you don't know. You have a, you have a more expertise on Eastern Bloc, and then it's where where does the Western expertise come in? And you went out and and found that information. So that's that's great attention to detail. It's really good to see. Yeah, and I quickly found out <laughs> when I started making these videos that because this game kind of like also tickles the Tarkov community, which is really weapon-heavy yes, knowledge. Yes. So every video that I put out <laughs> is somewhat under microscope because right. there are so many people watching who know tons of right. stuff about yeah. weapons. So I also want to up my game in terms yeah. of that I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had one video actually where uh, it was a mistake, but I had like pump-action shotguns and bolt-action rifles that ejected the cartridge uh, before reloading mm -hmm. so it was basically like auto <laughs> ejecting cartridges and i get probably hundreds of email messages <laughs> thousands of youtube comments uh. pointing those things out but yeah. I, I think it's it's great that people have expectations mm -hmm. because if you are uh, mentioning that you're a hardcore survival fps game that sets a certain part right. in terms of realism and i'm totally okay for saying that I don't know everything yet, but mm -hmm. I want to learn those things in order to get those into the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I when I started my my content originally and, and it took off, I had the same. You know, I had a I had a base knowledge and all the comments and everything. There was a lot that I didn't know, and it forced me to up my game and become just like this overall weapon expert now. So I, I, I wouldn't have been there if it weren't for all the comments. So it, it's it's ultimately a good thing, I feel, for the, for your knowledge base. Yeah, and I actually <laughs> love to learn this stuff. For example, mm -hmm. these adjustment systems that I uh, have done now a couple of weeks, I had zero knowledge about, for, ex for example, suppressors and how they are connected to ARs and uh, how drum max actually work in you know, AR build and all these cool nuanced things that I feel are really interesting. And for me, uh, after learning with my mentors who taught me about weapons, I'm pretty sure that someday I'm going to start this weapon thing as a hobby also for meaning mm -hmm. doing some 
I'm not sure competitive shooting, but some kind of shooting uh, yeah. hobby for, along yep. with this game dev stuff because it helps so much and I've gained so much knowledge in short period of time. So this project <laughs> will go on uh, so, so many years in the future and right. post launch stuff. So I want to make sure that I have right skill set in terms mm-hmm. of weapons. Yeah, yep. the three of us are on the same page then, just by looking at Crash's uh, wall behind him. So, <laughs> yep, highly highly recommend competitive shooting. It's, it's yeah, a, it's a whole lot of fun, and you meet really awesome people too. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I love it. Um, yeah, so I guess are you? Am I? Am I good, Buff? Am I get? Can I? Yeah, get, you're good. Can I get fired back up again? All right, you can go. Go for All it. Right, here Take we it go. away. Um. <laughs> so uh going along with some of those mechan oh i guess let's let's just continue on i had one more question about uh the, the weapon animation stuff um you mentioned those are procedural and um a couple times and i i have always thought of procedural stuff and automated things like the tools um some of the biggest um problem solvers in the game industry for for getting more content easier by using some of that procedural stuff. And this is, and I'm, I'm more asking cause I am just a stooge that enjoys playing video games. Um, <laughs> so what are some of the advantage? Cause I, if I'm not mistaken, some of the other thing ways you can do those animations are with like mocap and then like traditional keyframe, like moving the rig, like every frame and, and making keyframes, um, has the procedural stuff, um, really sped it up and allowed like for easier future content. Uh, basically, there's like three approaches to doing FPS systems in video games. You have basically this manual approach where every movement is somewhat handmade and they are usually keyframe animations. And then there's this hybrid method, which combines some procedural noise and patterns, uh, which are implemented through code. And then like the cherry on top is that uh, reload animations and such, which are hard to do in procedural manner, they are done handmade by an animator. And then there's this fully procedural approach that I'm currently using, with, where everything is done by code, and there's all kinds of curves, noise patterns that try to simulate recoil, breathing, weapons way, and such. And this is one of those things that is again implemented because it speeds up so much. I can basically add uh, three weapons per day if I want, if I have all the audio files. So there's no, like, the animations are the huge thing that I want to solve to do procedurally because it hasn't been done uh, in the game industry. I, I I haven't seen a procedurally made good reload animations yet in FPS or survival games. I'm sure that there's some that I'm not familiar with, but at least in the big scope of things, it's a norm that weapon animations are done by hand. Uh, and there's all, all kinds of, currently the best way to do is this hybrid method where you're taking the same approach that I'm doing now, but then you do those weapon animations by hand. But I, I want to try, because I have a couple tricks in my sleeve to do those totally uh, true code. Because if I can pull that off, meaning rest of the development, I can add weapons to the game without having to do manual animations. It's like 10x multiplier to productivity. It's That's hard awesome. to do realistically because if you think about finger rigs and bones that are associated with 3D models, they're so intricate and little movements to them 
it's hard to control those all with code so it's easier to do those by hand for example taking a front grip of the gun requires a bunch of small finger movements but i want to try to do that procedurally as well i think it's one fun challenge for this project that can i pull that off meaning i i sometimes publish a video which showcase some cool weapon animations and some comments say or oh, you hired an art animator or somebody even though it's true code so i, I try to pull that off yeah and it, i mean yeah it's yeah <laughs> already well on its way because i mean even in the demo i thought the animations were were really good um and in the in the demo the uh, character arms were totally static all that move was the weapon but now i last week i implemented arms ik which is based on this inverse kinematic stuff where the bones move dynamically with the gun so now there's all good, uh, realistic arm twist and move so no awkward rotations and it add whole not uh, a whole level of uh dynamics to the game already even though it's totally procedural so i think the next demo will be my like showcase for what can be done in procedural manner that's really cool because yeah then you'll be able to yeah sounds like the initial setup is hard but if it works out then adding guns and content later on will be a breeze that's that's really cool yep. um what are some of the things that you focused on with the shooting mechanics and uh some things i'm thinking of like realism versus accessibility um and details versus overall feel and kind of like when it comes to i guess we already talked about um inertia and reload um but like are you, are you i was thinking and i i guess accessibility versus realism i mean in like recoil um there's yep. a lot of you know you don't want if it feels too realistic it won't feel fun to play so like how how do you kind of look at those things my first like thought around this was that I, I want to try to do this like skill-based system where the when the character starts uh it's kind of like the hand placement is poor the recoil is hard to control and this is like linear curve where where you use more guns uh, the recoil and the weapon skills become better the hand grips become more tactical and so what but i quickly learned that there's all kinds of like problems with this approach because for example if you're uh, implementing uh, specifically a bad recoil for the player even though you have this cool idea that you are not familiar with guns so the recoil is bad uh, it's pretty annoying to someone if the camera shakes too much and there's all these like physical real life problems that comes with it so currently i'm trying to fight some middle ground to this where it's realistic but there's some skill still tied to it but uh, to be honest i'm pretty just swaying numbers right now uh, in order to get that good production flow and all all like optimization and like figuring out, out the correct values for recoils horizontal vertical weapon kick kick recovery i have all those variables in place so i can dynamically change those but i don't want to get too hung up with the numbers right now because the main thing is to get this project in a state that it's fun to play and then i can make this like really hardcore and realistic in terms of recoil and weapon stuff so it's kind of on the side burner now 
but I have all those systems in place so I can modify those numbers when I want to. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like good. Sounds good to me. Um, so then um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was um, the core mechanics that you mentioned and you have them broken down into two priorities. Um, the priority one was movement, shooting, looting, and AI. And then priority two is um, medical, shelter, trading, quests, crafting, events, survival, and challenges. Um, what was, a, if I, I guess you don't need to go into too much detail, but I was just curious kind of what your thought process was in grouping these and their importance. And, and it, the other question I had, well, I, I guess answer that question first. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to yeah. bombard you. And uh, the ideology is basically this, that at first my job is to make fun looter shooter. And after that, I'm going to make a survival game. And it's just logical that because the most things that you are done, for example, in Daisy, what you do in that game, even though it's a survival game in every way, you move, loot, shoot, and basically that's your core game loop. Most of the screen time is related to these tasks so i think it's logical to like emphasize emphasize these specific priorities first and after that you can add those cool survival mechanics like fishing cooking and stuff so it's just logical in in my mind to do things in this way and i also released uh, one video that kind of like implied uh, or, or reference this same ideology, which is called Order of Implementation. It was in this uh, Devlog 4 game design video. And having this knowledge in which order to implement things in your game is super important because one thing that I, most of indie games students and developers, because they're so uh, <laughs> passionate about their project, they want to implement all the cool stuff right away. And it's totally understandable, but if you're implementing stuff uh, in not logical order, it usually leads to like backtracking. And you have, for example, if I want to make those hand animations now, I hire a 3D artist to do all these fancy weapon animations for me. Uh, in next week, I'm continuing my attachment system and there's going to be all kinds of tweaks and modifications to these systems. So those hand animations are going to be redone and there's all, all this backtracking if I implement things in wrong order. So I have this game design document that I did in this one year pre-production for Road to Vostok. And basically each system in the game, whether it's fishing, shooting, uh, medical stuff, uh, it's already planned out in which order I want to implement specific sub-features in order to avoid, avoid that backtracking of the development. Because it saves huge amount of time if you know in which order you want to implement things. And that's also kind of hard because when you're looking through YouTube comments and you see that some feature is really uh, demanded and there's uh, hype for some cool features, but you can't add those cool features right now, even though you can and you want, but <laughs> you have to implement things in right order. That's really smart. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and that takes really much discipline because, for example, uh, Rotovostok in my skill as a game developer is uh, like under my skill level. The graphics, I could do much better graphics in Rotovostok. The uh, coding, 
practices and architecture is really easy for me. Uh, so this whole project is like uh, thought that it's easy for me to do, but then it's really tempting to like show your skills in some part. For example, if I want to have co-op to this game, I could probably do that within a week and show, showcase some huge YouTube video and highlight that I'm this masterful developer and I added this thing in a week, but that would ruin the project for some other aspects so I can do that. And for example, the graphics, uh, I could do, do really high AAA graphics for the game, but that would slow down the production. So having the discipline to like underperform in order to have production speed is kind of hard sometimes because you are not doing as your full skill level. But that's why this project is going so fast because each development task is so easy for me currently. Yeah, but I mean, you have to look at the whole scope too, in my opinion. You can't, yeah, it's, in, it's, in, I don't, yeah, no matter how, it, like what I've seen already and like the whole scope of it, I don't, yeah, it's still incredible. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by, I, yeah, but it's, like doing it's better. honestly one, 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 one thing that I struggle sometimes, uh, it, it's not a huge deal, but for example, the graphics, uh, I thought visual game design, I, I'm familiar with all the like AAA techniques, how to get photorealistic graphics, but I can't add, add those to this game because it would kill the production speed. So having the discipline to stick to one specific uh, rules and guidelines in order to make sure the production goes fast, is, is it just requires discipline. Oh, yeah, for sure. And... Um, maybe you can see my screen. Maybe you can't. That was like my next question. Um, talking about uh, the photorealistic and not using uh, the PBR textures that you mentioned. I learned stuff from your videos. Yeah. Um, I thought the graphics looked awesome, especially in the demo. Um, have there been any challenges with it or has it been kind of a breeze? I know you use procedural stuff in that. And I also want to, it's not really a question. I just want to commend you on how well optimized the demo was. Um, usually when you play early access or demo games it's like low frame rates frame skips and jumps and stuff like that but i mean i had great frame rates the whole time and i love frames um so were, were there any challenges or was it pretty straightforward in, in building the environments um my current approach even though i i praised the production speed term uh previously but currently uh, there's no procedural like most of my artistic stuff that I currently do is based on these photo textures, which are taken me actually traveling to these places. And those take time to do, but uh, game development is sometimes, uh, like I mentioned, the game engine is your house. You want to live nicely and you want to have fun in your house and be comfortable. Uh, if I would, the way I, I do graphics currently is not maybe the most efficient way because there are all these kinds of tools and techniques and libraries that would probably make the graphics and environments more quickly but i decided that in order to get this authentic feel and uh, having the performance that the demo had i chose this route where i use really simple old-fashioned technique and these photo textures that i project to the surface for example if you play modern warfare some modern fps games you look at one prop or object, it probably holds 
maybe five different texture maps, even though there's like compression channel packing techniques, but uh, most modern game assets are pretty complex in terms of their shaders and textures. But Road to Vostok uses only simple low poly models and simple one texture material setup. So it's pretty fast, but I use, in terms of environments, I really enjoy traveling to these places because when you're doing this cave dev stuff alone, uh, it's pretty hard if you just sit down on your computer all the time, but actually traveling to these abandoned places, uh, having the experiences to see those old historic stuff and uh, there's huge, huge inspiration and motivation boost for me as a developer in that. So I chose this route, uh, not just for the simplicity, but also I maybe sacrificed some speed, but I gain some motivation because traveling to these places and doing environments like that is really fun for me. Yeah, that's cool. This is a quick side question. When you go to those places, are they, uh, are they on like parks or public lands or do you have to get permission from landowners to, to go in and check out these places or how does, how does that work? I was curious. It varies. Some places require permits and uh, it's actually kind of funny because I have had permits to like, uh, like break into houses, meaning they are <laughs> city owns them or some public uh, organization owns them and they are a fan of this project and I have had the permission to break into those. But when you're a game developer, you are not used to like, what What if the door is closed? You have to break a window, climb in and do, do all this uh, like <laughs> bad stuff. But it's, it's, it's so like... It deviates so much from the daily just coding and doing 3D models on a computer when in the other days you are breaking into houses and doing this urban exploration. It, it's just so much fun. And the demo doesn't represent the level of authenticity uh, that this game is going to have. But the public demo too, when the fully the environments are in the level that are in those photo textures, I, I think that will be the point when people start to see it. Whoa, this guy has actually been into these places and these look like those in the photos. Wait, so it's gonna look even better? Yeah, I, a lot of more. I don't understand. That, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, that's gonna be really cool. Um, are most of the assets like custom? I feel like um, a lot of them are, you, uh, showed in one of your devlogs where you built the, like the lookout tower, um, yep. from a low poly model and then, uh, used the photos to put the, the texture on there. Or is that the way you did most of the assets or all of them are kind of like rough? What percent? Yeah. I have a really specific answer to this. The only, uh, outside assets from the game are the rock model, uh, one tree model, uh, and one log model which is crowd <laughs> so tree models nature models are external but every other piece of prop building item uh, is all handmade through these photo textures every if you see a radio in some house it's actually a radio that i have gone picked up from the local flea market uh, if you see some uh, backpack it's one of my military backpacks that i own or i purchase so every asset is totally custom made for this game and the reason why that's important is because I don't know a word for this in English, but in, in Finland, we have this word which means this blanket, which has multiple different kind of colors. And 
usually games are if you are outsourcing all of your assets outside you have so many like stylistic variations and different colors material properties so your game tends to look not coherent and for Road to Vostok I wanted really that this game looks coherent in terms of visual things so having those all done by myself kind of like secures that that this game is going to look coherent yeah that's wild um that you built all those from scratch um then the other thing oh just really quick uh before a couple of kind of the overall wrap-up questions i wanted to talk about audio just a little bit um how has audio been um, in unity with like directionality and kind of realism? And one of the things I saw, it was really cool. Um, um, you had these uh, zones, you built like a big concrete silo. And then you could yep. tell when the player went inside the, the echo, the re reverb changed quite a bit. Um, how, how is that with audio? And is it the same kind of process where you go out and record these and yourself and put them in game? Or do you get them from a registry or something like that? Audio is one aspect that requires kind of fancy equipment. I, I'm really like uh, kind of, uh, I, I don't want to purchase high-end cameras and gear because it's all about like, uh, for me, it's important that I have low bar for going to this place. For example, all the photos is taken with my sub 300 smartphone there's no fancy camera or lighting or any of those stuff that require carrying waiting organization and so on so but audio is kind of difficult because good weapon audio for example it requires pretty high-end equipment multiple microphones to record those sounds range days so i think audio is something that will need external help for this project because i don't have the skills or even probably the motivation to learn all the uh, like audio equipment stuff so one thing that i'm going to invest some of my money that i uh, won for example one of the business competitions and for example the patreon guys they are helping so much with this project uh, and all, all this money I, I want to put back into project and hire maybe like world-class weapon audio guy for that but in terms of like reverb zones and those that you mentioned in the video uh, those are pretty easy to do in code because they are usually just filters uh, to some audio sources in the game engine but in, in terms of recording the audio that requires pretty high end equipment and skill set to do that that makes sense i i know some uh some games struggle with audio in the unity engine that I know. And it's so so important. For example, this whole this dangerous journey narrative that this game is going to have, and this Vostok side, which is supposed to be this mysterious, and all all this like speak about hardcore game. It requires really realistic sound profile, and this game, in my mind, deserves that extra level of immersion in terms of sound. And if I can hire that guy who can. Uh, get to that next level i'm more than happy to spend money on that because this game it it requires that amount of good audio and i i can produce that myself maybe i can produce until the public demo too but for early access and the future commercial versions of the game uh, it would require somebody to do those audio for me 
that's really cool yeah audio is is really really important and and even if uh even if games were um don't look as good sometimes the audio just takes it over the top in my opinion when you have a game with with really good audio it it it's i feel like it has more to do with the immersion than you think sometimes at surface level yeah um cool and then uh kind of along the same lines of audio uh what about the the soundtrack i know you put out some of those songs and stuff like that how did how did the the music for it come to be because it's perfect yeah there's one uh, guy who is doing all the OST stuff for Road to Vostok, and he's totally great. He has understood perfectly the vision for this game and like the aesthetics uh, and what I want from that soundtrack. But I also recently uh, collaborated with one Finnish composer who started working on the ambient side of things. Uh, and that is going to be one of the key things for the public demo too, to like portray this ambient feeling of getting close to the border zone you can feel the like the tension rising and more like uh, scare not not scary is the bad word but i would say tension is the right word this like mysterious feeling and that requires a bunch of ambient audio design so there's also one guy who's helping that but currently there's two audio guys they're not full-time but it's more more of like freelancer stuff that's cool yeah tension tension is going to be what it's about because i if i remember right i saw that you uh if you die if you're in the vostok zone and you die you lose literally everything so yep. bummer that will build some tension i i consider in the next demo it's one of the like key points for this project that when you are going into that crossing point and you cross that vostok that's should be the special feeling because this game is all about that border zone and that mysterious zone and this all reflects back to the daisy it had i don't know if you guys have played daisy but there was this abandoned airfield with which was called North, northwestern airfield and it was like the high tier uh, high risk area and the next demo is going to portray this dangerous journey idea where you're getting close to the border zone and it requires a bunch of good audio and ambient design in order to portray that feeling that shit this this is intense yep um so yeah that lines up perfectly with what i kind of wanted to talk about so we've we've talked about you know before you started making the game um how you went through that process and now kind of where we are now presently um you just had a play test on steam and it went awesome i thought i was i was very impressed with there was like like one little bug where you had to restart the game and then it worked um and uh you said in your video over two hundred and fifty thousand players checked it out uh currently i think it had over three hundred thousand downloads and probably two hundred thousand players wow yeah Congrats. It, 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 that's amazing yeah but I, I think this kind of like shows because i spent a whole year in that pre-production and mm -hmm. i i spent so much time learning if there's a demand on market for this game because i mm -hmm. i researched all those stalker communities tarkov communities and i've been part part of this survival center for 10 years so i think that demo kind of validated this 
hope that I have that there's a demand for this kind of single player game because when you're announcing that you're making a single player game nowadays, uh, it's I'm, I'm pretty sure that I can say for most developers you are thinking does anybody play single player games nowadays and especially in survival games on where the dominating games like Daisy are multiplayer games. So there's a specific risk you are taking with single player approach first. But I think that demo kind of like validated me that my time in pre-production and understanding the core audience, what they want, all those stalker modding stuff and experience that I had, that this demo showed that yes, there's a demand for good mm -hmm. hardcore single player survival game. Yeah. And the one that actually delivers on what they say they're gonna do. I'm I'm with you. I totally I totally got in the, I, several games. I don't really need to talk about them, but that came to mind when you talked about um uh the the stigma of early access survival games and how so many of them have promised the world and then kind of flopped and not not followed through. But yeah, I mean you've done obviously done all your research and and it's a definite recipe for success. Um, so the next thing, then the public demo did get an update where you changed the inventory system. That was really cool. And then no, it, it, it did not yet. I, I have only uh, basically uploaded those development builds to Patreon. So each month I have done a rework for some systems. First month I did the whole inventory system totally new. Then I did the equipment system, clothing layers. Now I'm doing the attachment system. And each month the Patreons get test. But all these new features and levels and details are going to dumped into the public demo one at some point next year, probably Q1. And okay. then everybody can test those, all, all the new stuff. Okay. Because I saw I had saw a gameplay of it, so I thought I thought they were the Steam updates, but they're to the Patreon. Um, cool. Because I, I knew I'd seen that uh, somewhere. Um, so then uh, public demo two is... I mean, and that's been the other really neat thing, uh, how you've been, you've said, you know, this is the time frame and you've met deadlines every single time. Um, the next big release will be a public demo too. Is that still on slate for quarter three of 2023? Yes. And, and uh, I'm, I'm really careful about hyping things up, but uh, some things that are happening behind the scenes and all the cinematic stuff. And there's so many people who are drawn to this project and I have the privilege to like get these opportunities whether it's directors or some audio guys i think the public demo too if everything comes to plan is going to be the moment where people realize that oh wow this isn't just another hobby project and there's something to this which is kind of different and that public demo do if everything goes right i i think that will be a big moment for for survival game sonar if they if i can portray that thing that I mentioned, that this dangerous journey and how one developer can handle this. I think many people who are afraid for this project and considering if this ever gets done, if this is just another survival game which is stuck in early access for 20 years, I think that Public Demo 1 will show the progression and all this planning that I have had uh, all, the, all these years for this game because that first demo was kind of like just a snippet of what I have done but that public demo too is the actual vertical slice of the game. That's really cool. Yeah, 
because then I see I, I have the the roadmap on the screen or excuse, the production <laughs> team has the roadmap pulled up on the screen. They finally did something right for once. Um, so it's, it looks like it's going to be three maps kind of in the area five, a couple stash houses and then the crossing points and then a map in the Vostok area, the dangerous area, dangerous zone. So it, it's going to have the public demo two is going to be our first glimpse and hands on with the actual gameplay loop, right? With the kind of yes. the journey from safe to danger and taking that risk and going after the loot. Yes, and uh, I, I I want, uh, I consider my, this pro demo as a success if I can take people's breath away when they enter that red map, because like mentioned, I don't want to talk any anything about that. I'm not going to show any screenshots and it has to be experience in the game. And nowadays it's so rare to have those gaming experience, uh, especially in single player games where you're like, whoa, this is something that I haven't seen or I haven't heard any tutorials or videos or screenshots. So that one red map is going to be my big wow moment for that demo and showing this That's all awesome. what is Fostock. That's really cool. Look forward to that. I I didn't I didn't realize that it was going to be yeah. That's that's really cool. It's it's a great um balance between communication and transparency but also like hype and mystery and that that's going to be really exciting to check out. The only game I can think of that kind of did that recently was like uh and it wasn't a shooter uh was like Elden Ring where the map was so big and you discover these new areas that no one had seen and yeah. I, I, I can see it being like that. I'm looking forward to trying it out. And then I'm going to die and lose all my stuff and have to get, to get back there again. But that's how that's, that's that's going to go. But I remember one, if I can share like a little bit of a story and like why I, I really think you're on the right track with everything. Um, not that my opinion matters. But um, when you said uh, with your demo, I sent you a message and said congratulations on the demo. And um, you said that you were surprised at how people you know there wasn't a lot of people saying you know they expected more or there there's not enough stuff here to make a game and all that and i just said um that was a, a reward to you for being so transparent and just showing people putting people's expect expectations in check and right where they needed to be so i i think you're really on the right track with the transparency and you're just going to see more of that of of people being excited and um and you basically just told everybody what it was going to be like and it it was that and to me more because i i didn't expect it to look that good and run that smooth um so early on so that yeah i think you're working really hard on it and um i'm really happy to see it paying off because um i just i really respect the transparency and the straightforwardness um that yep and, and one thing i also want to mention that this transparency thing also uh, includes that I, I want to tell honestly if there's some problems in the development, even though I said things have been so easy for me currently, but for, for that public demo too, is there's, if there's some development tasks that are going to be an issue in terms of uh, time and schedule, I'm, I'm going to be totally honest about that. I'm planning to be on this nailing every milestone and deadline for this project, and it seems that I have plenty of time to catch that, but there's always a risk because if you're doing everything by yourself, what if you get sick for a month? That kind of like ruins for your timeline. So I'm just hoping that there's no big surprises, but if there is, I'm going to be totally honest because that's the best way to deal with in this genre. And one, one thing I also want to mention that uh, 
I have learned a lot of things about content creation and titles, for example. There have been quite a number of Road to Vostok related videos on YouTube. And some of those titles are, of course, because you want to get clicks. Is this the new Tarkov killer? This game will destroy <laughs> Daisy. And having to balance those titles and expectations is all, all I, I consider it's my job because it's not the content creator's job to set realistic expectations. It's my job. The content creator wants to have the most uh, like highlighted thumbnail and title. And I, I totally get it. But my job as a developer is kind of like counter that in these development videos and so the real what is going on. Yeah, I think the positive feedback that you've seen is the proof that you're doing a good job uh, with that. And yeah, that the, the state of YouTube and how to get people to check out your videos is a whole whole nother podcast probably. But yeah, yep. um, it's kind of frustrating sometimes with how clickbait you have to be to get if you just want people to watch your video. But that's just how that's the nature of it. Um, if I can add one one thing, I remember in the beginning you asked if if there's some problems that I have had or some things. One issue that I have personally had is with this Road to Vostok YouTube channel is that I've been teaching game dev and I have pretty extensive knowledge about these systems and how the best approaches to some like FPS stuff would be. So I'm I'm really struggling because I would want to make YouTube videos and do this content creation and do these in-depth devlogs, but I always have to like like suppress this uh, need or desire to make those because each video I'm sure you guys know because you do content creation full full time or or, or at least so much more than I so. I'm I'm really struggling sometimes because now I'm just doing these small development updates, which are great and transparent, but I, I would want to do more videos and show some knowledge that I have, but currently there's no time for that. So I, I must con think some approach to this, which is sustainable uh, and how I can kind of like feel the need for this desires to show some of the stuff that goes behind the scenes but maybe i figure out something yeah yeah so i think that, i think that'd be a really good transition for you after you know obviously you have your priority right now but you're establishing yourself very very well so transitioning to the tutorial type videos at some point when you have the time would you know you're already going to have a, a a decent amount of, of folks that are very very interested in it when that time comes so that's really good Yep. yep. And, and not just only tutorials, but for example, the attachment system that I did last week, there's so many cool nuances to this that I have seen many new developers struggle with and just showing some few clips, how it works behind the scenes and doing this like small develop video about this is Road to Vost at attachment system. Here's how I design it. Here's the implementation. Here's the modular design for these different attachment types and how to approach it in indie. Uh, favorable way, meaning it's fast, no much manual stuff. Uh, so I, I, I definitely will need to figure out some ways uh, of how I can make those videos fast and fulfill this need of showing these things. Yeah, yeah, that uh, there, there, there's similar ways um, to approach video making um, as, as you do with some of your tools and stuff, um, setting up 
um, kind of setting up editing templates and stuff where you kind of just drop the footage in um, yeah. and, and scripts and overlays. There's ways to make that faster too, but I, I, I get it. It would I would love to see those videos too, but understand. I'm, I'm, I'm really bad at like the voice uh, and uh, like the speaking voiceovers in, in videos. They, for example, each devlog or where I speak in, in English, I have to like record one sentence at a time because I'm not happy with the pronunciations or everything. So I, I think one key aspect to making videos faster is getting comfortable of recording like long sessions and don't be afraid if you screw something up because now the my routine basically involves if I want to do some more in-depth video, I go to the coffee shop, I write a detailed script of word to word that what I'm going to say in English. And then I uh, record those phrase by phrase and I screw most of the sentences probably 10 times. So it's so time consuming to do that voiceover for me. So for, for why I'm joining this show and why I'm doing live Dev, uh, development in YouTube is to getting familiar with uh, speaking English and being comfortable of like just being in, in this content creation mm -hmm. ecosystem. No, yeah. that's really good. I mean, and one thing I think I'm super dyslexic, so I never, I never write anything down. Every one of my videos and everything is completely me just winging it. So, you know, me writing scripts just doesn't work. And I, I think the way you're doing things is great. I, I, my goal was always to make things as genuine as possible. And I felt if I were reading from a script, it wouldn't feel genuine. And I think that what, you know, whatever you're doing behind the scenes to do your voiceovers is working. Cause it's, it sounds, it doesn't sound like you're scripted or anything, which is, I, I think it's very important. So I think you're doing a great job. Yeah. And and that's that's the other challenge too when you say some of that stuff like you have to redo a sentence a bunch of times i learned that uh when i worked for production house doing uh filmmaking stuff is you you have to at a point you just have to say it's it's good enough because there's like a and I, i'm sure you understand this but there's like a a negative return yeah. on time like uh, diminishing returns and someone who's working on a video and i'm sure it's the same with game development any kind of art form you can always keep working on it you can keep trimming cutting changing forever and it's never truly done in your mind and you have to just say it's pretty good because your your speaking today has been awesome like and yeah you know nothing amazing. was written down and um you've done great today um really thanks really really appreciate and it i think one aspect that helps me with this is is that military background even though it's kind of funny background but I, i'm not afraid of like going into these difficult situations and embarrassing myself or uh, getting out of my comfort zone for example, I can honestly say this, but uh, I, I'm a pretty confident person. But first time when I pressed that OBS button in my first live development session, I was absolutely <laughs> shit scary and terrified for that. And I haven't felt a genuine scare for probably 10 years, but I was actually scared for streaming. Yeah. But the second stream, I was so much more comfortable and seeing the progression, how fast it goes and how you're getting comfortable with doing live stuff is 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 it's so good feeling because you're evolving and not just in game dev but you are actually gaining skills that are useful for you in the future because if road to Vostok aims to be this best hardcore survival game out there i, I can't be this guy who just hides behind the bushes and no nobody sees uh, i i i have to learn these skills now mm -hmm. or sometime in the future so 
joining this show and doing this live stuff is definitely something that I want to do in order to improve this. Yeah, doing great. Great job learning. You're obviously a really fast learner because it, yeah, it comes across awesome. Live live stuff is is sketchy, um, for sure. But there's a there's an art to it, and you get comfortable fast. I'm sure I'm sure you will too. But I I think with your content creation, the stuff you're doing now is a really good pace, and there there has to be like a a happy medium to where while you're working, you know, you could click on OBS and record your screen and just you know kind of talk about what you're doing, and I I. And then you know that, cut that, that down would be totally movie. awesome. I'm so so jealous of people who can just record and, <laughs> and get something coherent. So because I, it's so much yeah, work I, for me to get simple sentence. I I have to, and well, I I guess you know with that not being your native language, that is an incredible challenge to overcome. I'm sure, but with me, I I pretty much have to make my videos over lunch, so I have like 30 minutes to make them from start to finish, edits, overlays, thumbnails, like. I gotta like be really fast, so I've gotten better at that. But yeah, I'm actually redesigning this because currently I'm doing these fifth videos, which are these short two to four minute development updates on YouTube. But I'm uh, redesigning that concept to be uh, maybe a bit longer and more. Uh, I wouldn't say artistic, but more probably well thought out and what I want to show. So mm -hmm. the first video that will come after uh, the New Year's Eve, uh, meaning end of January, it's going to be like this Road to Vostok uh, Devlog chapter 2.0. Uh, so I think I have good formula for those videos that they will be fun me to do, uh, pretty fast to do, but they, they still would kind of improve that devlock game in some way mm -hmm. that's that's awesome um if anybody yeah yeah you're gonna you're gonna transition and do content creation just fine <laughs> like you're you're yeah. doing awesome um if anybody has any questions um before we went live uh auntie said he would uh answer a few of them if you guys have some um while we're doing that um i just wanted to say wherever you're listening to this um on, on on YouTube live now or the VOD or listening to the podcast platform in the show notes or in the comments or in the in the description are all the links to where you can find him. Um, the Road to Vostok Projects uh, Patreon if you want to support. Um, another awesome way uh, you can support is a wish list on Steam uh, to stay updated and that's for free. Uh, the demo is for free. You can check that out on Steam. Um, all those links are down in the description wherever you're watching or listening at. Um, so definitely check that out um were there any questions um buff that you had from during the time yeah i, I grabbed take... I, gra I grabbed two that i found uh the first one i'll just throw them both at you really quick because they're pretty straightforward the first one was was uh what how many extracts like what are they i know you covered boats cars so someone was asking what are the what are the all of the extracts currently planned and then the other one was how do you get access to the demo uh, the first one, uh, the basic extracts are within the map and they're called transition points. And the most common transition points are just like roads, paths, uh, but there's some more exotic like tunnels and uh, some require different vehicles. For example, there's old moped, there's uh, boats, there's uh, one truck that could be used for smuggling yourself, uh, which requires certain items or trading value in order to access those. So 
some of the so-called extractions, transition points will, will be more exotic and require some items or tools or value, but most of them will be pretty common, which are always accessible, like roads, paths, and so on. Mm. But in terms of uh, those crossing points, they are a whole, whole different thing. Those require different unique gameplay, gameplay mechanics. Great. Okay, uh, that, that's good. What's the second I mean, question? Yeah. How, how to get access to the demo? Yeah, someone was just asking, how do you get access to the demo? They were curious if you had to be okay. a Patreon, is it free, etc. Yeah, it's totally free. It's on Steam. Uh, it's pretty obsolete, to be honest, currently, but it's totally playable and you, you get to experience this small snippet, but the project has gone so far from the demo, but there's going to be some level of updates to the demo in next early next year, but if you want to play it, you can play it today. It's on Steam. Great. Um, are there any... We had another question. Is there any... Um chance of in the future doing uh maybe co-op or adding other players uh pv you know it's going to be uh pve mostly but is there a chance of co-op or even multiplayer pv pve in the future co-op is actually something that is already tested in this game and many systems have and have been designed in a way that it's compatible with co-op systems in the future uh so i would answer uh strong maybe to cope, but it's just matter of order of implementation. But I, I could see this stalker-like experience would benefit from cope stuff in the future. Even though this project has been heavily titled as a single-player experience now, but I'm not going anywhere and I, I'm not in a rush. So in the future, the cope is definitely something that would add value to this. I don't see that this project is going to be a Tarkov competitor and this high PvP shooter because that would require so many other elements and I, I'm pretty sure that you are aware of like how how you you previously talk with Big Fry probably with this topic meaning how many systems and thought processes PvP game requires so it's not on the plate for this project but Coop is something that is. Did it delusia? Fry or Hello? Buff, you got me? Yeah, yeah we're good. We're good. Okay. We're good. I thought my audio's been weird on my computer and I think it cut out for a second. Um are there oh this is a really good question. Um are there any more details on the winter weather tease? Does it involve more than snow and paint on surfaces, or will there be like changes to the audio, like a winter soundscape as well? It changes everything. Winter is designed to, even though this the base game is already a hardcore game because there's a risk of losing all. But uh, do you guys know the like the term Iron Man mode for some games? Meaning, for example, you can play RuneScape in Iron Man mode, and if you lose your gear, you lose everything. So Road to Vostok doesn't have a specific Iron Man mode, but it will have a starting menu where you can toggle different options for your gameplay experience. And one of those options will be seasons. And if you toggle that option, it will actually give you seasons, including winter. And that winter changes everything because each system that I have designed for this game is already taken into account that, for example, all the clothing will have insulation uh, modifiers, uh, the uh, ice might affect some surfaces, all the footstep sound has already been snow has been 
uh, late to those detection things so that winter will be kind of like a separate gameplay experience and it's going to be pretty brutal because the winter side of the things for this game it's going to be a whole nother like multiplayer in difficulty but that's basically like iron man mode for road to Vostok. if you don't want to have that winter experience uh, then you just toggle that option when you start the game man you've thought of everything we can't stump this guy <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy man that's awesome yeah it sounds amazing yeah it's this is one of the this is uh one of the single player games that i am have zero percent concern about like the replayability and the longevity of it and especially since i would urge you to maybe potentially increase your target price <laughs> for, for twenty dollars holy cow like that's that's a, that's a lot of content already talked about especially with the amount of maps and things that that you've talked about it's that's i mean you could bump you bump that up a little bit maybe yeah it's it's more of like when i mentioned that burn rate and how, how like how costly it's it, it is to make this game so basically i have so little development cost for this game now because most of it is totally handmade by me and there's no uh, expensive studios so it's not just uh, deciding the price point it's more of designing how big you want your community and potential audience to be and if i have to leverage to modify that price point without sacrificing the actual like economy of my company because there's no big burn rate for this project i'm more than happy to choose certain maybe lower price point uh, in order to gain more audience and maybe uh, modding communities and such so i think that's what one competitive advantage for this kind of game if you can like play with the price point without having to like worry about if your studio or company will survive he's thought of everything i can't stump him can't get him <laughs> so, no that that's that's really cool um any anything else buff i think we i think we covered everything a lot I, of good questions there and he had an answer for everything you're right yeah. i mean it, it it's super impressive that you're just one man doing all of this. And I think we've said it on the show a lot. It's, uh, I mean, you're putting AAA studios to shame, <laughs> to be honest. So I'm, it, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I guess, I guess that is a question. What, do, what are you going to do when, when the EA and Activision try to hire you and get you to run their studios? And stuff? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do anything. I have chosen this path for a long time ago and, I've already resigned from two carriers for this project. And uh, I can already say that if if I wanted to choose a different path, there have already been multiple opportunities for me mm -hmm. to take that path. But I have declined those paths because uh, this project, there's no hiding. This will take years of mm -hmm. my time. And I, I'm totally prepared for that. And I truly want to see because that's a whole whole thing for this game. The survival game genre has been pretty uh, quiet for many years. There there hasn't been much innovation, and there's always the same games on top of the Steam chart. There's Daisies, and of course there's new games like Dead Sides and Scum, and some. But still, the survival genre is pretty stagnant 
if that is the right word in English. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so I, I really want to see that there's a new experience and uh, like really handcrafted project that is not just trying to quickly jump into another game. For example, I, I named my company Road to Vostok LTD just to like, because I'm, I'm not doing any other project. This, this is it. And in survival games, I, I think there's a need for this kind of project where somebody truly sticks to their idea and not just does a Kickstarter and then put out a mediocre product and jumps to the next game. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we talked about that with Big Fry too, about how a lot of you know folks will do a Kickstarter, kind of an asset flip and early access, and then right off into the sunset with a with a paycheck. Um, and yeah, I I think this game's needed too on not necessarily just a survival um level for that genre, but also just for indie games in general to show what can be done if you you put in the prep work, do your research, and and take something from start to finish and prepare correctly and see something through. And I think it's going to be, um, as it's setting now, it's potentially is going to be like kind of a, a beacon on the hill, a shining example of what, what the indie uh, scene can do with someone who loves the game is passionate about the project. And it's, it's so many things um, in my humble opinion, that's missing from triple a games. It's the opposite. Um, you know, like the new, the new shooters with with Call of Duty and, and and Battlefield even now kind of being a lobby shooter. There's so many algorithms and things in them just to keep you playing, keep you into the store to buy stuff. Um, this is going to be a game that is made by someone who loves the project, cares about it, uh, you care about your players obviously, and you just you have such a such a bond with the content and and the game and what it is and where it comes from from your from your homeland and it, it, I, we can't wait to see it, man. And and you deserve all the success you've gotten so far, um, yeah. I just you put in so much work and it's incredibly impressive. And uh, appreciate you being here. Thanks. It, it was great. We talked. We talked for almost two hours about how busy you were, and you had took <laughs> time to come on this show. So <laughs> really, 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 really appreciate it. it with anything, buff or uh, auntie, you'd like to add? Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just echo your, your statements there, Crash. I mean, like you said, it's, it's a passion project for sure. And it shows already. So I'm, I think we, we've hit, we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of people on this show, uh, especially Big Fry last week. And we've been covering, you know, Dr. Disrespect's game too. The difference here is that, uh, Auntie is a single developer developing his passion project. So, um, I mean, the indie space is great right now, and this is this is another very very good example of what benefits the indie dev space has over AAA. So this is great, and I I really hope other studios are taking note of the transparency. We love that so right. much. Yes, um, yes, big. Really appreciate that too. Um, is there anything uh, you'd <laughs> like to say to players, potential fans, anything, uh, Auntie, before we go? Give you the last one. Uh, I, 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 I think not, nothing special. Uh, I, I'm just a guy who try, tries to make a good survival game and is, is indeed really passionate about this thing. And I've all, sometimes there's been questions like, uh, what if somebody robs your game idea or steals your game code or takes your assets? But I, I've already responded that 
if somebody else can pull this off and provide a killer experience in survival game, do it. And I, I, I'm more than happy to open source most of the stuff that I have done in the future. I've already released a bunch of assets totally free. I'm going to release yet with another demo, a whole bunch of free. So I'm all about improving the survival game genre and providing something that would add value. So there's no like hidden agendas for me here. I'm just a guy who's tried to make a good product for the game, for the genre. Well, I, I think the genre is lucky to have you. Um, yeah, I think that's a show, guys. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here. Special thanks to Auntie for being here. Um, we will be back at some point next week. Haven't talked to Buff with the holidays and all that. We'll get it sorted out. Stay tuned to the channels. Um, again, it's a podcast if you want. Uh, it's available on all those platforms. And uh, Merry Christmas to everyone that celebrates. Happy holidays to um, everyone. I hope however you celebrate, it's awesome. Uh, everyone's families and stuff stay well, stays well. Safe travels. And um, we'll hopefully uh, see you guys next week. Thank you so much.